0: The worst of contemporary American politicians are an absolute lightweight compared to Caligula, compared to Nero, compared to any of these people. If you think American politics is bad now, man, you don't know what Rome was like then.
1: Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. Today, we are pleased to have joining us again, Philip Barlag author of the new book, get that on screen there, Evil Roman Emperors, The Shocking History of Ancient Rome's Most Wicked Rulers from Caligula to Nero and More. This just came out just a couple weeks ago. Is that right, Philip?
0: That's right. June 15th or 16th was the final official publication date. So it moved about 15 times. It went from May 1st to May 15th, back to May 1st, to June 1st, to June 15th, to June 16th. It was like the peripatetic launch date. So I couldn't actually at this point, I'm not even sure the exact date that it came out. All I know is it's out and I'm really happy to be here.
1: Great. Well, we had you on just uh, a couple of months ago to talk about a book that you'd written several years ago um, called uh, The Leadership Genius of Julius Caesar. And so, and after that, you'd, you'd written a book that you, that you let us know, let us know about last time. Um, what, what was the other book called? It's like the history of Rome in 12 places or something like that.
0: Yeah. In 12 buildings. At, 12 that's, buildings. That's right.
1: And then, so this is your third book on Rome. And I guess my first question um, is how did this one grow out of like your previous books and your previous interests? What, uh, what was the impetus for this book and this theme in particular?
0: you know, it, it's in a lot of ways, this was the book that I'd actually wanted to write all along. So, you know, the last time you, you were kind enough to have me on, I shared, it and I'll share again that I'm not a historian. I'm, I'm an amateur. I, uh, I do, I, I read and write about history in my spare time because I enjoy it. And I particularly am fascinated by, uh, Roman society, Roman history. And, uh, I decided I wanted to try my, my, my hand at writing. And I wrote the first book. Um, and largely a leadership book, because that's what it took to get a book published, Uh, a publisher who knows, I don't, no one knows me. I'm, I'm this independent, non-historian, non-expert, nobody in the publishing world. All of those conditions are still true on my third book. Uh, and so in order to get published, um, they had to go towards a genre that would have a wider audience, which was leadership. So the challenge was how do you translate ancient Rome into modern leadership? And I'm actually delighted with the result. And I love the book and I, and I hope people like it too. Uh, The second book I thought, okay, I want to try this again. And I tried to pick a book that I thought would be competitive in its category as in travel. Like I didn't see there was a lot of overlap between genuine history and travel. And, um, I remember, being in Rome for the very first time and asking someone why the Colosseum was called the Colosseum. And the answer is contained in that book. So, in a lot of ways, I tried to write a book that I wish I'd had when I had gone to Rome for the first time uh, as a guide for people to help them have a richer experience participating in, in the great history through its archaeology uh, and, and architecture. But again, I tried to engineer towards a specific outcome. Let me target a category and write something unique in that category. This is the first time I've ever really tried to say, I love Roman history. Let me write a history book and just unabashedly embrace the fact that, yeah, I'm an amateur, but I'm trying my hand at history and I hope you all like it. And So uh, I wrote the book because I felt like I hadn't yet expressed myself as an author about how I write, how I think, how I analyze history and how I share the stories that I accumulate with the world. So it is my third book about Rome, but it is the first book that I felt like I really wrote for me. And I hope that's reflected in the experience people have, and and um, I hope there's some joy and, and humor in the tone mm-hmm. that maybe my voice is still coming out, and I and I hope everybody likes it.
1: Yeah, it is It is very entertaining. There are some uh, good jokes. I was reading some of the reviews on, I can't remember if it was Goodreads or Amazon, and there were a few people that said that they listened to the audiobook and they said <laughs> because there's no pictures in an audiobook, obviously. So they said, "Well, the, the pictures must be hilarious because the descriptions are are very funny because there there are some good captions to to the pictures of like the busts of a lot of these emperors or leaders." Well, that's one of the uh, that's one of the thing I wanted to say about the book. It's pretty much you get like a um, almost like an overview of the entire history of Rome through these. Um, uh, high points or low points so high points of evil but low points in humanity um from so from the beginning from from the from the mythological beginnings the legendary beginnings of romulus and remus all the way to the to the fall of the western empire um so how did you go about how did you go about um finding the 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 individual Accounts like did you did you start out with a with a long list and just eliminate them or were these just the the ones that kind of just uh, just came to mind for these particular uh, individuals and groups?
0: Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I, I I'm glad that you highlighted the portion about the book being um, a, a history, sort of from the founding to the collapse of the Western Empire. You know, one of the things I hope people really like about this is that hiding inside this book is intended to be a single volume history of Rome from its founding to its collapse, at least in the Western empire, uh, which spans a, you know, 12, 1300 year period. I'll also confess with you. And this is, you know, as you guys know, get to know me even better now, you'll know, I'm, I'm these long-winded rambling answers to seemingly simple questions. So bear with me, cause I promise I'll, I'll get there. I hate the title of the book, or I should say, I hated the title of the book. Uh, and the publisher is the one that, that kind of pushed for this to be the title. I had wanted to call the book murderers, tyrants, and lunatics, because I thought that was much more descriptive to who these people were. And as a, uh, as a non-professional historian or an aspiring professional historian, there's a inaccuracy in the very title, which is that not all the people covered in this book are emperors, right? In Roman history, you have the monarchy, you have the Senate, you have the empire, you have the dominant, Are sort of the four big apocalypse cycles of Roman history. And not everyone contained therein is actually an emperor. And so I needed to have my publisher kind of s- tell me to stop being such a nerd about technical language and be descriptive about what this book really covers, which is just truly the worst of the worst from, from Rome. Mm-hmm. Some of the people are just intrinsically obvious, Nero and Caligula, the reason their names are in the subtitle, because it's a signal to those that know those people, hey, you're going to learn something about folks you 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 know you, you may be familiar with. However, uh, I, in my review of Roman history, have gotten to know some of the lesser known, but equally genuinely awful people whose stories deserve to be told. And what I've found, uh, as I dug a little bit deeper, is that the ones that people know the best are not necessarily the worst. So if you think Caligula is the worst, read on. My argument in the book is that he's not. I won't tell you where he where he falls on the uh, on the countdown from 10 to 1, but he's uh he's not number 1. He's not the worst, and I think is a pretty compelling case that there's quite a few other people who at least rival if not exceed him in terms of their awfulness and those are stories that need to be told as well. So I I think there's um a really long and distinguished list or, or or ignoble list of people that would contend for consideration in a book like this. But I think I'm pretty happy with where we landed. And, mm-hmm. you know, to be very, very precise, I did feel like it was necessary to even out the chronology so that you had not a thousand year gap between, you know, person A and person B. We needed to find people from within Roman history that would smooth out the narrative and, and really have a nice timeline so that you're not just having giant gaps, because part of what we're trying to accomplish with the book is to tell the story of what Roman society was. And if you're having to start from scratch in a completely different time period with a completely different ruler in a completely different system of government, too much time gets lost in that background. So we're just trying to keep things constant, smooth out the narrative and, uh, and have some fun along the way.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it is fun. Um, one of the things that I, that I appreciated about, appreciated about the book is well. First of all, like I mentioned, you—it's an overview of of all of you know the whole history of Rome, and it begins in the the legends and the and the myths. And the point you make mm-hmm. right at the, right at the beginning is that, um, like historians nowadays acknowledge that probably. Things didn't happen like the Roman history. The Roman the Romans themselves believed that they happened, like the with the founding of Rome, with Romulus and Remus, and the story like that. There's some legendary and mythic undercurrents, and probably probably a lot of those stories are just pure myth. But the point you make is that it's still important to know to know those stories and to present them because those were the stories that Romans themselves told themselves. That was Mm -hmm. their self perception. So the, the 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 story of the founding of of Rome and the essentially the the, the fratricide and the, and then, you know, later on the the regicide and like the, the, there is murder and betrayal kind of built in right into the founding myths. And then as you, as you show in the book, this proceeds over the, over the, the millennia through, through the whole history of Rome. Um, so I wanted to, but you also, you do something similar with a lot of these guys, because in several of them, in, in particular, you point out that the, uh, that a lot of historians wonder how many of the the evil stories that that are told about them were actually true, and how much of it was just, um, like, how much of it were stories told after the fact by historians that were kind of kind of wanted to besmirch the name of these emperors, maybe maybe further than they'd already um, besmirched themselves. Um, I just wanted to know how you kind of how you dealt with that, how you think, how you think that question enters into it. I'll give one example because uh, because we mentioned him already. I believe it's Caligula. Caligula was Caligula was one where there's several stories and several accounts of why he was the way he was, and there's one account mm. that he that he had this illness, and beforehand he seemed like a pretty good guy, a pretty decent guy d- with um, some some interesting and kind of like progressive policies for for reform, and then he had this illness and came out and was just kind of like batshit crazy, and but there are d- several different accounts of. Why that might be the case. So maybe just wh- what do you think about that, and what do you think about the about the stories? Some of the, maybe some of the more outlandish stories that are told about emperors. Do you do you think we should um, um, take them with a grain of salt or take them seriously? How do you approach that?
0: Yeah, no, it, it's actually probably the central question about how do you write a book like this, right? Which is you're presenting things almost as historical truths that are. Uh, in certain cases, very come from very suspect sources and uh, stories that were written to achieve political goals that, you know, there's going to be a variance from the truth. I mean, I think every I'm guessing every nation could probably find inside its founding mythology, some story that a, a, a collective nation tells itself about a truth. I cannot lie. I chopped down the cherry tree. Two hundred years it took before we realized that that was completely fabricated. But by the time it didn't, it didn't matter. People's impression of George Washington as a you know stalwart nine year old boy was rooted. and It was part of the mythology. It was part of the folklore. It's part of the founding ethos of America. So Rome is no different in that sense. It, it just told stories about itself to be reflective of what it wanted to be as a society. And occasionally, governments fell and rose and fell and rose. And the you know the following and successive narrators propagandizers historians etc had a political incentive to trash the predecessors or to highlight as weird and deviant the people that would have been political enemies or or representative of the prior regime take for example uh, elagabalus who is one of the featured characters in this book he's worth getting to know he was definitely strange he was probably not as awful as he was described and for most of his life and career, the only sort of extant Latin history is a document called the Historia Augusta, which if you dig into a little bit of the historical accuracy, you find that it kind of collapses right away. But at the same time, we have no other narrative that would contradict kind of it, balance it out, et cetera. So the only source we have is the one that is proven to be unreliable. So you have a choice. Do you just ignore that character or you tell the stories with a big asterisk next to it, saying, like, this is one version of events. It may or may not have happened. It sure is fun storytelling. And you know, the, the challenge for me is to try to get to the essence of who these people were, even if some of the details about how we construct that essence are questionable, we still wanna to get to the fundamental truth. Mm-hmm. He was a 14 year old kid. He was way unprepared for, uh, for power. He had some very profound identity issues in a way that manifested themselves into behavior that Romans would have deemed to be aberrant and strange and weird the hit chroniclers would have taken those weird store, you know, what they deem to be strange and weird uh, characterize them to a further extreme. And what's left is that extreme version of the truth. There's no doubt that he was uh, an ill-prepared and incompetent emperor. The essence of his character is harder to, to nail down. So it is a tough challenge to do is to write about this. And if you read the introduction, I always get very paranoid, by the way, I try to, I try to think about what are the critiques of, of books and put the, the, my response to those critiques into the introduction. And I think what I said is like we have to simultaneously take historians, you know, take them at their word and take it with a grain of salt. You have no other choice otherwise. Uh, a lot of historians uh, gain a lot of traction by saying, yeah, but we don't really know this happened. And it's true. Certain things in history are just utterly unprovable search you know, up to uh, interpretation, et cetera. If we stopped this book, every single time we ran into a fact that said, yeah, but maybe that didn't happen. Yeah, but the historian and the sources are unreliable. It would be dull and tedious and absolute crap, and no one would want to read it. And as like an independent guy trying to sell a book here and there, man, I, I can't do anything. <laughs> Sorry, I got I to gotta keep pushing as hard as I can. I don't want to stop the train. Uh, so The intention of the book is not to only qualify with academic rigor, that which is knowable. Mm -hmm. For Roman history, that's an impossible task. So yes, absolutely hard. Have to take some of the sources with a grain of salt. Qualify in the very beginning, in the first few pages of the introduction. This is what it is. This is what you're dealing with. When you're dealing with Roman history, this is what you're dealing with. And even some of the more well-documented figures, Caesar, Augustus, etc. A lot of what has been accepted as conventional narrative is also ultimately unverifiable and unprovable. That doesn't mean we stop teaching it. Mm-hmm. If you stopped teaching Roman history and only narrowed it down to that which is 100% knowable, it would be a very, very short curriculum. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a challenge with the sources, but but hopefully the result we we thread the needle a little bit and got through to the other side.
2: Well, well, Philip, th- there's a. Uh... This overall kind of picture that you paint in your book that shows this extreme tension uh, between those leaders that would seek to uh, make things stable, to institute policies of reform, uh, to not go on the war path, and and then these uh, leaders that basically took power through either assassination or uh, association. And, and it it's as though there was this, you know, two sides, uh, to ancient Rome that were vying for dominance. One, you know, one of, uh, order and stability and, and control and balance. And another that was just plain, uh, murderous and psychopathic. And so I think one of the virtues of the book is if you, if you look past the idea that, yeah, I mean, some of the details may may not have actually been correct you do get this overall overarching view of ancient rome uh that presents as this kind of schizophrenic uh you know on on one hand it could have been this wonderful uh center for civilization for most of its time uh but there are other periods where you know you you got these guys coming into power and and you have to wonder how is it that after after wasn't there some collective memory by the people of Rome that you know if, if you kill the, the 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 kind of wise philosopher king uh, and you put this kind of right. tyrannical you know general in power um, things are going to get bad uh, lots of people are going to die a lot of money is going to get wasted a lot of resources are are going to be diminished and so. Um, this greater picture that you present i think is is very valuable uh and and instructive and i wonder if you can uh speak a little bit about this kind of overarching picture uh that you you paint of ancient rome uh, along those lines
0: yeah well thank you and you're right i mean if you didn't have good good ones every once in a while then things would have fallen apart a lot sooner and part of the reason that rome could for lack of a better term afford or endure such murderers, tyrants, and lunatics is because there were also people of extreme competence. And more importantly, Rome itself had built institutions that allowed for a measure of self-sufficiency. It mattered very little in the provinces in Gaul if the emperor back in Rome was behaving crazy and, you know, killing his wife, Nero, or humiliating the Senate, i.e. Caligula, or indulging in weird Eastern religious mystery cults, i.e. Elagabalus, because the Roman system itself had a measure of, of uh, sustainability to it. And that's part of why Rome endured for so long was the institutions that it built very early on and, and uh, evolved and kind of found their ultimate capstone in Augustus in the birth of the empire, created a measure of uh, stability that was, um, uh, you know, that was hard to erode through the rule of any one megalomaniac you know, take take nero as a great example uh you know when you read the book and i hope everyone here does uh, and enjoys it um uh you know you'll find that some of the stories put your add a lens to it which is would this matter to someone in the provinces would it matter to someone in gaul that nero and his mom were feuding and he probably killed her. Would that matter? Would that actually affect the stability of empire? Did it make him an awful person In warrant consideration for this book? Sure. Did it matter in the provinces? Not a lick. So there is a bit of a, uh, uh, the personal behavior versus its broader impact on the empire. You know, people, uh, but to the point on, you know, folks have comment, one, uh, competence. One of the questions that I, I get asked a lot is, well, who's your favorite Roman ruler or emperor? And that's, that's tough. It's like, which of your kids do you love the most? Uh, but I, I, I tend to skew towards the answer, uh, a guy named Aurelian in the mid third century Rome fractured and, you know, almost had a premature death and there was a breakaway kingdom in, in the South with, uh, the wily queen Zenobia and the Palmyrene empire kind of broke off and carved a piece of itself away. In, in the Northeast and in, in, or sorry, the Northwest and the Gallic Empire. And so, r- breakaway Republic over here, breakaway Republic over there, each claiming to be the true legitimate source of Roman power. And then what was left was in the middle in the traditional you know, sort of Italic based empire. And so, Aurelian, who was uh, a Roman general uh, from the province of Illyria, uh, Aurelian was a man of exceptional competence. He came to power in 270 in the midst of what's called the crisis of the third century. And he went off a conquering and he smashed both the the leaders of both those breakaway kingdoms, brought them back into the fold uh, for which he was given and took the epithet restitutor Orbis, or restorer of the world. He brought from three kingdoms back into one and reunified the Roman empire and did so with such incredible vigor. that it set the stage for Rome to last for another couple hundred years. And his successors, some of whom are very famous Diocletian, Constantine, et cetera, never would have been able to have ruled over a unified kingdom had not it been for his enormous energy and enormous competence. And, you know, he ruled for five years. They were spectacular. He was assassinated in a massive bout of myopia, um, but he. Was able to kind of put it all back together, and and his his competence allowed for Rome to continue to prosper, thrive, and absorb some of the people who appear later in its chronology that were not of same level of talent.
1: You mentioned the the institutions that Rome had had created, and how that led to a a, a certain kind of system resiliency. That uh, that you know, Rome was able to, to survive because of those institutions, and the a lot of the things that these that the worst of these guys were doing didn't really reach into the provinces. But I wanted to know who who do you think maybe not maybe one maybe two or just whoever comes to mind out of these out of these leaders in your book. Which ones do you think had the most influence, like the farthest reach, um, to the point where the people in the provinces? were affected and kind of, um, so it wasn't just limited to the, to the elite circles in Rome and the, like the aristocracy, but who do you think had the most effect on the actual people and the, the, the actual empire itself and all of its, you know, all of its extensions?
0: Would it be fair to ref- to, to also add as an addendum to the question, like which emperors began to actually undermine the institutions themselves, yeah, yeah. as opposed to just, yeah, chaos in the imperial system. Mm-hmm. I think the clear winner in that ignoble award ceremony here is Maximinus Thrax, mm. uh, which, by the way, is such a cool name. Uh, and it just Thrax just meant Thracian. I have a, a, a friend of mine who wrote me an email after having read the book that said, I wish you'd written this 13 years ago. My son would have been named Max Thrax Roberts, uh, because how else, you know, why not take advantage of history? Um, he was uh, he was a giant, he clearly had some sort of hormonal or glandular issues that let him grow very, very big. His legendary stature is, is in the book, who knows how much of it is uh, embellishment. It's clear he was a giant. I mean, just huge, it's how he got the attention of the emperor, got into the imperial service as this peasant off in the hinterlands. Um, what made him sort of the contender or the winner of the did great destruction in the provinces was that he, uh, you know, wrote, conventions of ancient warfare was that when your your army went and conquered the the, con- the plunder of war became part of how you paid your army. Go sack a Germanic village, seize its movable loot, distribute the spoils among your troop. Your troops are happy. the uh, the, the armies become a cash raising engine to finance themselves. That has happened from time immemorial. In that way, Rome was no different. What made Maximinus Thrax such an uh, insidious character is that he began to sack Roman cities, Roman villages, Roman provinces, so he took a Roman army and put it to conquest against Roman citizens, simply larger part to pay the army, but also as a sheer brute exercise of power. Uh, because that's just kind of who he was. So when you have your own emperor destroying your own people purely for profit and for dominion and for exertion of power, that's going to go a long way to uh, eroding the trust that exists between institutions and the, and the governing class, between the civilian population, between the military uh, and it's going to have long-term consequences. And indeed it did. And, and most of the sources would point to the fact that his troops didn't even want to do this, but he made them do this. And how do you say no to an emperor who is, you know, eight and a half feet tall and can throw and eat 40 pounds of meat at a time and all, you know, all the legendary things about his size. So, uh, that would be my, uh, this is where it really started to tip, uh, Mm -hmm. for Rome and, uh,
2: the the wheels began to come off, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, you devote a little bit of attention to the Praetorian Guard, this kind of mm. um, the the head uh, team of people who provided security for the emperor who were quite often responsible for actually um, committing the assassinations and, and or uh, launching a new emperor and and being mm. a kingmaker. Um, and you describe some of the characters in the Praetorian Guard that um that got too big for their britches and and basically uh were incredibly powerful themselves uh and and would kind of um restrict the amount of information that they were giving to the emperor at the time i think tiberius was uh one of those emperors who was outside of rome and and one of these uh, Praetorian Guard leaders would would filter out information because he he was so manipulative. And what I was wondering is, I have my own ideas about it, Philip. But I was I was I was thinking about that as a as a group of individuals as opposed to an emperor that wielded this incredible mm-hmm. amount of power at the time. And so I was wondering if there is, in your mind, perhaps an analogous group uh, in contemporary history. <laughs> That you might think, you know, that's that's kind of like uh, the Praetorian Guard, what 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 this agency or or that military has been doing here or there, or um, if you have any comments about that kind of uh, that concentration of power among people who are not elected, but but have this kind of security right. detail.
0: No, I, I think it's uh, it's a really fascinating question. And I actually would love to specifically address the, uh, the temptation to draw parallels to modern society and why I, I tend to avoid it, because there's a very uh, cynical and self-serving reason why I do so. Um, I think that, but to give a very direct answer to the question, think that anytime you can see a, a cabal of people who uh, align their interests to put them in their power, to put themselves before uh, the citizenry, you're going to find echoes of the Praetorian Guard. And Think about uh, monopolies in the uh, pre-Sherman uh, Antitrust Act era who price control, gouge, manipulate and there's no other choice because they're the only show in town. You know, in fact, the the monopoly on force is what allowed for the Praetorian Guard to be so uh, extractive, exploitative, violent, just degenerate. They were the only armed troops allowed inside the city of Rome. They were well-trained people who took these posts after, generally after a distinguished career in the military. And they would use that power to promote their own gains. And when they had a weak emperor, uh, they could, in fact, hold the fate of the empire in their hands because they could exert that power and they could do what they could do. And they were unrivaled. They were a monopoly. So think about a monopoly. Think about a, a you know, an economic block that, that holds the fate of society in its hands, whose only goals are for the furtherance of exploitation of wealth or resources or whatever, and in that way, I think you'll find the, uh, the the echoes without naming specific organizations, but just you know monopolies in general. Who controls access to information? Who has power? Who controls access to power? Um, I will say that um, uh, I get asked a lot to draw a parallel between, say, an ancient Roman emperor and a modern American president, and uh, or a you know a modern American politician or a modern world leader or whatever the case will be. And I avoid that like the plague. And it's for a couple of reasons. One, we're in this country, in America, here, we're so politically divisive that the moment I declare, you know, Caligula equals, uh, let's just say Trump or Nero equals Biden, whatever, just whatever, half the p- people that might read this book are gone. They're just gone. And I can't afford to alienate half the audience. But it's worse than it, it's more um, basic than that. The worst of contemporary American politicians are an absolute lightweight compared to Caligula, compared to Nero, compared to any of these people. If you think American politics is bad now, man, you don't know what Rome looks like then. There is so much more at stake when the ruler has unquestioned authority, unquestioned power, when they snap their fingers and someone dies, or 10,000 people die, or 20,000 people die. There is no comparison, none. Are there seeds of megalomaniac personalities in a lot of world leaders? Absolutely. Do some world leaders now kill, violently exploit their people? Without the shadow of a doubt. Is there any contemporary American politician that would come in the top 50 of this list? None. Zero, regardless of your political proclivities. Part of it is because America currently benefits from the same thing that prop Roman up, which is strong institutions. There are arguments to be made that those institutions are eroding or under attack. Those debates are important. They should absolutely be had. But for right now, for right now, there's no one that could come to the presidency of the United States, the chair of Senate committee, the Supreme Court, whatever, who could order 20,000 people to be slaughtered like that No questions asked within the confines of its domain. Yes, there are absolute questions about foreign imperialism, military adventures, the role of countries, you know, ours and others intervening in the affairs of other people. Those are also important questions. I'm simply talking contained within the walls of our own domestic system. Uh, So put a parameter set around that. I don't want to talk about, you know, when, when we go off to war and the motivations for them, et cetera. Just within the confines of the American political system, there's no one out there who would warrant consideration on a list like this because, frankly, the institutions serve as too much of a check on those types of impulses. Mm-hmm. That that, that makes sense. Does yeah. that work.
1: <laughs> that uh, I want to tie that into one of the first things we talked about today, which was the 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 nature of the sources on these ancient Romans. So. Even if you go the the, the skeptical histori- historians' route of saying, "Oh, I, we we can't know if that actually happened. We can't know if this actually happened." Well, even then, the propaganda of Rome tells something about Roman society because right. you you couldn't you couldn't find um, a popular historian or let's say, on the on the par of these historians of these ancient historians of Rome who would say things about say American politicians. Say the particular things about American politicians that they said about like Elagabalus or or Commodus or Caracalla, right? You just yeah. the fact that they were that these things were able to be said and presumably be, ta- uh, be taken as plausible stories says something about what was what the kinds of things that actually went on in Roman society and how things actually worked. That this stuff could happen that things like this did happen, that there were tons of assassinations, there were um, prescriptions and, you know, death lists and just, you know, outright slaughter and all over the place, like these things. um, So I guess what I'm trying to say is to say that, um, to take the skeptical route isn't to say that none of this stuff ever happened and things were all rosy. It's to, it's, it's really, well, maybe in this case, this didn't actually happen. But I mean, it was a plausible story at the time. And it was a plausible story to, to To Romans, after the even immediately after the fact, and that really doesn't compare to a lot of contemporary um, politics or trends or actual practices.
0: Right. Yeah. the The aphorism that's been modified and warped so many times that I'll probably get it horribly wrong, but the essence of it is the truth. Right. Never let the facts get in the way of the truth. There is a fundamental truth to the nature of Roman society. It was violent. Autocracy was uh, unchecked; the violent impulses of people that held absolute power. There was no control against those, and the results were devastating in a lot of different cases. And that said, some of the things that are ta- not everything in this book is is so questioned historic, you know, in terms of its uh, historicity. Uh, the prescription you mentioned, the first one, Sulla is a senate he, senator and art uh, general. He defies Roman convention. He marches his troops into the city. And after some back and forth struggles in a civil war with his great foe, he eventually orders the, a complete liquidation of the political class that stood in opposition to him or the, those members of the political organization or, or political affiliation that stood in opposition to him. And he put a list. Your lives are forfeit. Heads, you know, bring me the head of the following people and you will be rewarded. And heads went up all over the forum and heads went off all around the empire and thousands of people were killed. I have not yet found a a source that said that probably didn't happen. I don't know about that. So, you know, there is some uh, truth to the overall arc of Roman history is exceedingly violent, bloodthirsty, and there are certain instances that remain more or less consensus. Some version of this, some very close approximation of this is likely what, what happened. So, yes, the sources are occasionally and episodically unreliable, but the broad truth of what Rome was and how Roman power was exercised and the implications of that remain unchanged, no matter how many qualifiers you put over the actual precision of the details that have come down to us. Mm-hmm.
2: So I had, um, <clears throat> I guess my first introduction to, to some of these leaders was in the 1979 movie Caligula with <laughs> Michael McDowell, and uh which um i don't recommend by the way it's it's pornographic and brutal and very violent um but it did give a very good sense of of how perfectly awful uh caligula was and fellini made satiricon and and we also have ridley scott's gladiator uh that includes a little Mm. bit of commodus i think um but in your slim volume philip um because there were so many times when uh I realized I didn't have the scope of just how uh, brutal and psychopathic um, Rome had become during these periods or, or how brutal and psychopathic the leadership was, um, was allowed to be. So I just wanted to say that um, also, you know, prior to reading this, I was familiar with Sulla, uh, uh, the, the general who was basically terrorizing mm-hmm. his public just prior to Caesar taking the reins. Julius Caesar. Um, but this book really gives a sense of uh, the, the outsized, off the, off the charts um, capacity for a modern, at that time modern, developed civilization to mm. uh, what, what complete chaos can look like in a very short period of time. And and one of the stories that you uh, you point out is, you know, Marcus Aurelius, the kind of philosopher king emperor who did a wonderful job for a mm-hmm. period of time. Um, and we know, you know, we know his works through his stoic writings. Um, so he he his son, was it Commodus who? who, uh, who Commodus, was it? yeah. Commodus, uh, you know, different, the apple fell so far from the tree in that particular story. Um. Uh, ah, don't spoil it, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's. I apologize. It's too late, but uh certainly
1: we'll put a, a sensor bleep over that number rip, there. Yes, yeah, we'll, we'll edit that. Out
2: <laughs> but but certainly there there was this. Um, I think if if one of the features of the book. Uh, it, Succeed so well, as in how quickly things could turn so bad, so so soon with with just a psychopathic uh, leader.
0: It it it's really almost defies belief when you think about the gap between what Marcus Aurelius was and what his son was. Right, the, the, that has to be the biggest in terms of sheer competence in analytical power in terms of just this capability to go from Marcus Aurelius to go from Commodus. Now, someone listening to this knows their history of Marcus Aurelius. They would very rightly point out that he was engaged in a near genocidal war against Germanic tribes. He was no peach. He was off a conquering, trying to go and wipe out people who had dared to resist the hegemony of Rome there he had his own body count there's no doubt and that doesn't get it didn't come out in the meditations very often he said dear today you know dear diary today i killed two thousand germans it doesn't really show up much in that essence of his character and it kind of gets overlooked so we want to offer the asterisk that you know none of the roman emperors sought to exercise power purely through humanitarian means so there is some uh there is some uh, uh qualification that goes there but Marcus Aurelius was indeed brilliant. He did uh, try to genuinely serve what he thought was the cause of empire over the best of his own needs. I think there's one thing in the meditations that says like, oh, you're all warm in your blankets here while your troops are out freezing. Get up, you lazy bum, and go. I mean, that he, he did have this inner drive, this inner monologue, this competence, this analytical capability. None of it existed in his son, Commodus. And I, I think you know, the, the uh, Edward Gibbons says that the secession from Marx Aurelius to Commodus is the point where you Rome's on terminal decline. Because from here on out, it's more bad news than good, even though the Roman Empire has another 300 years left in it, at least the Western Empire. That's a massive, massive gap. But it's important to say about Commodus and the movie Gladiator, everyone has seen Gladiator, or almost everyone has seen Gladiator. And in that movie, Commodus is cunning he's brilliant but tortured he's twisted but he's channeling his needs against a small group of enemies he's you know this he's that he's this he's that the problem with gladiator is it way gives him way he, too much credit he was not smart cunning calculating he didn't give a lick whether the people liked him or not he was brutal universally he was an awful 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 person and even as twisted as the ridley scott commodus is there is some redeeming element of tortured genius that, oh, if only he had applied that to good means. No, none of it. He didn't, there's no way Commodus had the, the motivation or the drive to try to, to, to execute some plan, some scheme. He just wasn't that bright. He wasn't that sharp. He wasn't that motivated. He wasn't that driven. And the problem with the movies, it makes him way, way better than he really was, even as bad as it makes him look the real Commodus was was, was just much worse. So uh, that's why it's worth exploring why he's number on the list. And uh, I think think, uh, the contrast between the image that comes to him versus what he really is uh, will be quite telling. Last thing I'll say about Commodus Marcus to, 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 uh, to Commodus Marcus Aurelius gets a lot of grief from historians for not having adopted and appointed an heir of talent and merit. He was the last of what Gibbon called the five good emperors. You've got Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, or Nerva, Trajan, Antoninus, Pius, Hadrian, uh, Marcus. I got those last two in, in, out of order, forgive me. Um, but each one adopted their successor. Trajan adopted, uh, Nerva adopted Trajan, Trajan adopted Hadrian. Hadrian, Antoninus, Pius, Antoninus, Pius, Marcus, Marcus did not adopt his his successor. He had Commodus and he gave the empire to his son, knowing full well, his son was an idiot. Why people ask that all the time. Why none of the previous four guys had a male heir, none. So he, he, it probably never crossed his mind to adopt someone of talent. The only reason that any of the prior four emperors had come to power is because they'd been adopted because there was no son to hand things over to. So, We do need to give Marcus a little bit of a pass on that. It would have been stranger for him to not give the empire over to his son uh, and to bypass him for a successor. And by the way, had he done that, it would have unleashed a civil war and there would have been even more bloodshed and turmoil. And he was probably hoping, put my lout, surround them by good, talented, smart people, they can tamper the, his excesses and, and everything will be okay. And as a result, it didn't at the end, it didn't really work out, but we got to get, that's one area. We got to give Marcus a little bit of a pass. He didn't really have much of a say in the matter.
1: Yeah. And it most fathers or most parents, um, you know, aren't always the greatest at seeing the flaws in their children, especially when they don't know how they're going to turn, turn out. Right. Because, um, sometimes right. you, you can't, you can't, you can't always tell that your child is a complete monster, and even if they were, it's hard to admit that, um, you know, as a parent. So, so yeah, cut them, cut them some slack. Yeah. But one of the things that stood out to me about both the reigns of Commodus and Caracalla were, mm. um, and these aren't the only ones that did that, but they both, they both seemed, uh, well, whether they did it intentionally or not, what they both ended up achieving was destroying as many competent people in the ruling class as possible and mm-hmm. replacing them with totally incompetent um, just schlubs. They maybe that's all I'll say about that. I just want to know if you have any comment on that dynamic and um, what happened and just really anything about that. Yeah.
0: So, There's a theme of certain Roman rulers who sought to exercise and vent their fury on the nobility because they were not, they, you can almost feel their insecurity coming through in the way that they express power. I mean, Maximinus Thrax, anyone who even knew of his peasant origin, friend or foe, he had killed, you know, lifelong best friend, we're BFFs, we're good. Hey, your emperor now, cool, dead because that person knew from whence uh, Maximinus Thrax came. Caracalla has a rage and a vent against the nobility. Caligula has a rage against the nobility. Caligula came from absolutely impeccable imperial pedigree, but he hated the nobility. He hated the farce of the pretense of deference to power. And he just called the bluff of all the sycophants. And then you know, he took their dignity and then he took their lives. But you've, that is absolutely a pattern. And you know, to, to the question asked earlier about do you see modern echoes, I think we can all see in bad leadership people who manifest the worst of their leadership by as an expression of their insecurity. The, these are all people who were born, grew up, nurtured, cared for, ruled, died. They were people. They were human beings. They were full of psychological flaws and craziness and. They had people that loved them, and they had people that hated them, and they were all human beings who walked the earth and then don't anymore. There's no doubt that any one of these people actually existed. Each is a confirmed historical figure. There's no argument that any of these people, well, except for Romulus, are wholly mythologized. Uh, But they were part of being human is to have insecurity. And when you have insecurity on one hand and unlimited power on the other, bad things are going to happen. And some people were decent rulers who managed to overcome some of those insecurities and others became chapters in this book. Well,
3: that was, um, that was one thing that I really liked about your book. Uh, I mean, I'm only, uh, five chapters in, so there, I've still got a ways to go, but it all falls apart.
0: in Number six right now.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, it's, it's number one, very entertaining. Um, it's, I hate to say like delightful, um, because of the subject matter, <laughs> but, delightful. but nevertheless, uh, it, it's entertaining and delightful and a, a very ple- pleasant read. Um, and one of the things that you, uh, I think do a good job of is like you were just saying, uh, you're able to give these characters depth, these, you know, these historical characters as horrible as some of them are and were they they still have well i mean i haven't read all of them and it sounds like some of them don't very don't have a very deep character um but some of them uh despite being terrible uh in very various ways uh they still had some depth and range to them that made them human mm-hmm. and and therefore interesting um and so i just uh, really appreciated the way that that all came out and um if there was was there one particular event and in, in all of you know the the story the history that you had been reading was there one particular event um, that stuck out to you as being like mm, the most shocking, I guess you could say, because there was there was one part where you were talking about uh, a pig of Fina, or I can't remember her name or how it's spelled. Um, the younger who Agrippina who, the Younger, yes, um, who ended up marrying her uncle, and then you would put yeah. in parentheses, ew.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah that, uh, that that was that was gross even to the romans uh you know the um the, their the romans conventions on what it was and was not an acceptable marriage especially within their nobility were probably more um uh sort of less restrictive than they would be in contemporary american society but they were um that that would have been pretty shocking even to the Romans in their time but you know, I think the, uh, the single most deplorable act in terms of just the, the, the psychosis that goes into it um, for me was the assassination of the Emperor Geta by his brother and co Emperor Caracalla. And, you know, they, uh, when their father Septimius Severus died, he left the empire to his sons. He gave deathbed advice, you know, honor the troops look after each other, scorn all other men, and they hated each other. They almost immediately went to civil war with one another. They literally divided the empire in half. They divided the imperial palace in half. They'd have a big line down the middle of it with barred the entries and bodyguards facing off against each other to make sure no one tried to come, uh, come in. And their mother decided she needed to step in and broker a truce. And so she invited the two of them to dinner. No bodyguards, no weapons, nothing, just the three of them. And we're going to sit down as a family and we're going to hash them up. And Caracalla uh, and actually the invitation may have come from Caracalla and his mother sort of encouraged it. But the three of them, sure enough, they get together and they've had the ceasefire and the whole thing is a trap and a setup. And Caracalla has his armed bodyguards. They kick down the door. They uh, murder Geta. And in the arms of their mother, Julia Domna, who is shielding her son, one son from the other. And uh, she gets injured in the process, too. So imagine holding your child and having them murdered on the orders of your other child while they watch glibly. And there's some incredible acts of savagery. And there's, I don't want to create moral equivalency. Caracalla later ordered the simultaneous execution of 20,000 Alexandrian citizens. It's not to say that one is worse than the other, but the thing that stood out to me is just like, holy cow, that's just aberrant even for that particular time. But what it made it particularly insidious is that Caracalla then forbade his mother from expressing any mourning in public. And she had to look joyful because one son, Caracalla justified this as he's unveiled the plot. He has said, my brother's trying to assassinate me and I got him before he got me. And I've liberated Rome from this evil tyrant and you should all be happy, you too, mom. And if I see you looking sad in public, I will have you killed too. And so that forced under the point of a gun to force your, in know, a point, point of a spear or a knife to have your own mother express joy at the murder of her son, who she held in her arms as he bled to death. That was the one thing that, that really just, it still hits me as a parent, you know, as, as a son, it just, it, you know, it's pretty, pretty brutal. And it, it, a lot of the, um, Uh, Roman form is dominated by the arch of Septimius Severus, which he built to to commemorate his military conquests. He had the portraits of his sons inscribed upon it and Caracalla uh, issued an edict that one, one son, Geta, his brother, would be wiped from the memory. So coins of Geta are scratched off. His face on this arch is gone. Any artwork that commemorated Geta is destroyed. So not only did he kill his brother, he did it in the arms of their mother. He demanded that everyone express joy. And then he sought to wipe his brother's memory from the face of the earth. And he's, that's not even number one. I will not, that's not a spoiler. Caracal is not even one. So if you think that's bad, it actually does get worse. Uh, well, gentlemen, yeah. I have to go. It is 1030. I'm, greatly enjoying the conversation. I'd be delighted to pick it up again later or kind of whatever your, your needs are here. You're incredibly grateful for giving me this audience and I appreciate it very much. So I'll leave it to you to tell me what would be best either just to have an awkward rushed goodbye or to yeah. pick it up at, uh, a little bit later.
1: Well, let's, let's do an awkward rushed goodbye for now. And then, um, if we change our minds, we can, uh, we can let you know. All right. So, okay. Well, okay. Thanks everyone. Or
0: thank thanks- you all. Yeah. Thank you all for watching, for listening. Please buy the book. Please give it a good review. I want to say someone on Goodreads wrote a review that said, this is great. I laughed. I had, I really enjoyed it. Great breezy style, three stars. Come on, man. (laughs) Help me out. Give me that five stars. If you really laughed, enjoyed it, found it breezy. Don't be so damn pedantic. Don't be withholding folks. Give me the reviews. Just kidding. Love you all. Thank you so much. (laughs) I appreciate you.
1: All right. Have a great day. Take care, Philip. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.